from across the globe. From the center of aerospace. And now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, now to the Wilbur and Orville Wright lecture. Mr. Patrick M. Dura is Executive Vice President of Lockheed Martin International and Chairman of Lockheed Martin Global Incorporated. And as such, he's responsible for Lockheed Martin's Corporation's global operations and industrial partnerships in 70 countries. Pat Dura has undertaken several important roles in Lockheed Martin down the years, but he started his career with the General Electric Company as a missile guidance, missile guidance engineer on the Trident II Fleet Ballistic Missile Program. After other roles in General Electric, he worked for Martin Marietta in Florida and then joined uh, Lockheed Martin Systems Integration in upstate New York. And among the, the important programs that Pat has led for Lockheed Martin are the V-71 Presidential Helicopter, the Hellfire Longbow Missile, as used by the UK forces in Iraq and Afghanistan, and the Medium Extended Air Defense System, MIADS. Pat's educational accomplishments include a Master of Science degree in Electrical Engineering from Drexel University and a Bachelor of Science in Engineering from Swarthmore College. He has published numerous articles in learned society journals. I can think of no one better to deliver tonight's lecture on global growth in aviation second century. Pat, may I invite you to deliver the Wilbur and Orville Wright lecture for 2014. Good evening, and thank you for that warm introduction. It's truly a pleasure to see so many friends and colleagues in the audience. I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak before this storied group. Uh, as you may know, one of Lockheed Martin's founders, Glenn L. Martin, uh, spoke before you in 1931, and Ben Rich, who headed the famous Skunk Works, after Kelly Johnson spoke in 1988. I don't pretend to be in their league, but I do share with them two things, a love of engineering and a commitment to building our aerospace enterprise. And by our aerospace enterprise, I mean the enterprise that we all as engineers belong to. I've also got a personal connection tonight with UK Aerospace and Defense that I wanted to share with you, and it makes this evening doubly special for me. I can truly say that this connection created my love of aerospace and defense engineering as well as my affection for the United Kingdom. So this picture behind me shows my father seated in front of a B-26 in uh, Andrews Field in Great Sailing, East Essex, I believe, in 1943. Uh, it's a serendipitous that it, be, it was a Martin B-26, and I now work for the Lockheed Martin Company. Um, Dad's unit, the 322nd Bombardment Group, was the first B-26 unit to enter the combat from the United Kingdom in uh, 1943, and the 322nd helped prove that medium-level bombers could fly tactical missions with great effectiveness. The plane here is shown without its artist rendition, which was customary during the war. Uh, this was the Mild and Bitter, and it was the first B-26 to fly 100 missions over Europe. And on this photograph, uh, this was a picture of the Mild and Bitter on a war bonds uh, tour in the United States after Dad rotated out in, in end of June 1944. Um, and if you could see with clear, uh, clarity, the photographs got my father's name on the second one down. Uh, he was the co-pilot, he was a flight officer during his time here. Uh, and um, it's, uh, 
Uh, it's got a list of, uh, I think, the air crosses and the distinguished flying crosses for the folks that flew this airplane. Uh, he came home, uh, became an engineer, and I grew up with these pictures. Stories of England. Uh, he did take trips into London, and I heard about St. Clement Danes from my father. Uh, and maybe he did have a mild and bitter or two in a pub. Uh, so again, this topic is near and dear to my heart. The place is special. And by the way, the, the plant that built this is a Lockheed Martin plant that builds vertical launch systems today in Middle River, Baltimore. So we are now a century beyond the founding of the Wright Company, which was shortly followed by the Lockheed Aircraft Manufacturing Company and the Glen L. Martin Company. And as then, we are faced with an equal measure of challenge and opportunity in the aviation business. The differences today, however, are in the rapid pace of technical innovation and the massive scale of the global supply chain. It's now rare for any aircraft to be designed and manufactured by one company, let alone by one country. And yet the Lockheed brothers and Glenn Martin could source parts and supplies from their California neighborhoods for their planes. The F-35 Lightning, which I will talk about later in a little bit more detail, by contrast, has thousands of suppliers around the world. And our aerospace global industry requires political, economic, and technical partnerships. It needs government and industrial cooperation to function well, and a steady stream of talented and motivated scientists and engineers for it to flourish. The years ahead demand, above all, adaptability to what I will call the second century of aerospace. So here are some of Lockheed Martin's representative programs from the first aerospace century. I promise you this is not an advertisement night. Uh, but please note the picture in the lower left, it's the Trident II. I started, as uh, Bill indicated, as a missile guidance engineer in Pittsfield, Massachusetts on the Trident II program in 1982. Many of you know about this program. It really has underpinned one of the strategic relationships and the special relationship that the United States and the United Kingdom share. Um, but even though it has demonstrated unparalleled success, uh, you know, there were challenges in the beginning. For example, when we first launched Trident II in 1989, we hadn't fully accounted for the plume of water following up behind the missile. It was significantly larger, more powerful than the Trident 1C4 uh, missile. And unfortunately, it entered the nozzle just after the motor ignited on its first test. It was a relatively easy fix, but it did delay IOC by a year. So the keys to success in aerospace engineering are not making the same mistake twice and turning adversity into good fortune when possible. We marked the roots of Lockheed Martin with the California factory openings of Glenn Martin and the Lockheed brothers, Allen and Malcolm, that you see in these two pictures. The similarities were remarkable. All three were naturally talented aviators and mechanically brilliant self-taught engineers. Glenn, Allen, and Malcolm turned spruce, bamboo, cotton, and glue into graceful seaplanes and created companies running parallel trajectories until they converged just 20 years ago. So even in today's supersonic and stealthy world, we can learn a lot from their experiences and other engineering giants who followed them. And here are a few lessons I'm going to tell you about from the first hundred years of Lockheed Martin. So sometimes when you have to break things to build things. Glenn Martin built his first seaplane uh, airplane in this rented Methodist church in Santa Ana, California. It took him, his friends, and even his mother over a year to assemble the pusher biplane. But when they were finished, Glenn realized he had no way to get the plane out of the church. <laughs> so he innovated, and he promised the church owners that if they let him saw off the front part of the building, he would put on a new front and a vestibule better than it had been. They agreed. The church front was removed, and Martin towed the aircraft to James Irvine's Beanfield in California, and it took to the skies August 1st, 1910. 
So it takes money to make money. So Allen and Malcolm Lockheed struggled to raise money to build their first aircraft. The principal investor in their enterprise was the Alco Cab Company in San Francisco. The Model G seaplane successfully flew on June 15, 1913, but they couldn't attract enough tourist passengers. So when the plane was damaged several months later, the cab company took it and put it in storage. So they worked odd jobs as mechanics, and they even panned gold to get enough money to satisfy their investors. And somehow they raised enough money, and they got the plane out and ready to fly for the 1915 Panama Exposition. And seaplane rides were successful at that World's Fair, and the brothers, Lockheed brothers carried 600 passengers and turned their first profit. A win is not always a win, and a loss is not always a loss. And if you work VH-71 with Augusta Westland, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, bittersweet. But at the beginning of World War I, Glenn Martin had only a few contracts, including 20 aircraft for the Dutch government. The early aerospace industry was going through significant churn, and after a failed merger with the, uh, the Martin Company with the Wright Brothers Company, the Cleveland Indians baseball team financed Glenn Martin's move from California to Ohio. True. At the new factory, Glenn and his team designed and built the MB-1, a fast twin-engine bomber with dramatic 72-foot bi-wing. The Army loved this first American-made bomber and signed an order for 50 in September 1918. But the war ended two months later. The contract was reduced to 16. And undeterred, Martin gambled again by redesigning the aircraft into the more powerful MB-2 and gained a contract for 20 more. And these became the MB-2 bombers in 1921 that Brigadier General Willie Billy, uh, William Billy Mitchell deployed to demonstrate that the vulnerability of ships from air attack was real, and he dropped bombs on the presumably unsinkable Ostfriedland. Don't throw away your first draft. Five years later in Hollywood, California, the Lockheed Aircraft Company began assembling new kinds of fuselages for civilian aircraft. Spiral strips of spruce were laminated, with, coated with glue, and then bonded under 150 tons of pressure. These structural skins without internal bracing were, the first, were first tried with the beautiful 1919 sport biplane, the Model S-1. It unfortunately missed the market, and it was flooded with excess warplanes at that time. But the newly reorganized Lockheed Aircraft Company believed in this innovative approach of fuselage and further improvised the construction uh, process. So when Lockheed designer Jack Northrop supplied his new cantilevered wings to the cigar-shaped hulls, the engineers found the light and nimble aircraft could carry a heavy, more powerful engine, up to 650 horsepower, and the revolutionary Vega was born. And it flew in 1927, two months after Lindbergh's, Lindbergh's historic flight, and orders flooded in. And then probably one of the key ones is hire and use smart people. So this is Kelly Johnson, as probably you've seen. In 1938, 29-year-old Kelly Johnson found himself in London with his boss, Cortland Gross, and a Lockheed team discussing a potential contract for a light bomber. With war looming, the RAF needed a good aircraft that could go into immediate production. The Lockheed team proposed the Super Electra, but British officials said bombs had to go under the floor and guns had to shoot forward, among a few other things. So Kelly holed up in his hotel room for 72 hours and came up with the Hudson bomber. And the contract was signed originally for 250, Lockheed's largest order to date, and by the end of the war, 3,500 Hudsons had been built for the UK. And then last on this section, timing is everything. Back to my dad, maybe. At nearly the same time, Glen L. Martin Company was pursuing an Army Air Corps contract for a new medium bomber. 
and another young and talented engineer, 27-year-old Peyton Magruder, came up with the Model 179. It incorporated many advanced design features, including an aerodynamic fuselage, self-sealing fuel tanks, and a powered gun turret. With its short wings and 130 mile per hour landing speed, it was tricky to fly. But air crews loved its speed and armor, and so did the Army, which ordered 200 in August 1939. And before it had even flown, Martin got an additional order for 930 of the newly christened B-26 Marauders, and the British ordered 459 shortly after that, and by the war's end, 5,266 B-26s had been built. So let me transition a little bit. As many of you know, in uh, 2001, Lockheed Martin won the right to build the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. It received its nickname, the Lightning II, in tribute to the proud heritage of the United States Air Force's Lockheed P-38 Lightning, as well as the RAF's Lightning. A truly global fighter, the Joint Strike Fighter was developed in partnership with the United Kingdom and Canada in the beginning, and their initial investment hoped both competitor companies uh, build prototype demonstration aircraft. So Boeing offered its X-32 with a delta wing design and a central air intake under the nose, and Lockheed, by contrast, offered the X-35 with the sleek angular wings and a cutting-edge Rolls-Royce lift van, which we heard about earlier today, for vertical landings. So the three variants were designed with modifications to meet the particular needs of various military services. All are three supersonic stealth fighters. The F-35A is designed for conventional runways and features an internal gun. The F-35B is built for amphibious assault ships, austere operational environments, taking advantage of its short takeoff and vertical landing capability, and to operate from the Queen Elizabeth carrier class, class carriers. The U.S. Navy's F-35C is optimized for long-range carrier-based strike operations. So the F-35 combines fifth-generation fighter aircraft characteristics, advanced stealth, integrated avionics, sensor fusion, superior logistics support, with the most powerful and comprehensive integrated sensor package of any fighter aircraft in history. The F-35 will enable, enable pilots to be six to eight times more effective in air-to-air -air missions, air-to-ground missions, and surveillance missions. Advanced electronic warfare capabilities enable F-35 pilots to locate and track enemy forces, jam radars, and disrupt attacks with unparalleled effectiveness. Data collected by sensors on the F-35 will immediately be shared with commanders at sea, in the air, and on the ground, providing an instantaneous, high-fidelity view of ongoing operations, making the F-35 a formidable force multiplier with, while enhancing coalition operations. An integrated airframe design, advanced materials, and other features make the F-35 virtually undetectable to enemy radar. The combination of stealth features, the F-35's actively electronically scanned array radar technology, and the aircraft's ability to carry weapons internally means that the F-35 pilots can engage ground targets at long ranges without detection using precision weapons to successfully complete air-to-ground missions. The F-35's integrated sensors, information, and weapon systems give pilots an advantage over enemy aircraft. In combat, legacy aircraft have relatively equal opportunities to detect and engage each other, while a fifth-generation fighter pilot can see enemy aircraft first and take action. The ability to see and not be seen is redefining air-to-air -air tactics. Much of the F-35's electronic warfare intelligence, reconnaissance, surveillance capabilities are made possible by a core processor that can perform more than one trillion operations per second. This core processor collects data from the electronic warfare suite developed by BAE Systems to identify enemy radar and electronic warfare emissions, and as happens with the electro-optic targeting system here, recommend to the pilot which target to attack and whether kinetic and electronic means or electronic means should be used to address the threat. 
Here in the UK, the quest to create a fighter capable of taking off and landing in confined spaces has been a decades-long pursuit on both sides of the Atlantic. As, earlier, as early as 1954, Lockheed was busy designing experimental vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, but unlike the British Harrier, the X-35B and its short takeoff vertical and landing system, or Stovall, op offered both vertical landing and supersonic dash capability, uh, creating a stealthy, fast fighter capable of carrying advanced weaponry made possible by the engineering excellence and innovative lift fan design of Rolls-Royce here in the UK. The United Kingdom has played an integral role with the F-35 since the program's earliest days. And even before a final aircraft concept was chosen, British engineers and test pilots were making their mark on what would become a revolutionary capability. Under the desert sky at Edwards Air Force Base in California, British test pilot Simon Hargraves looked, left onlookers awestruck as he took the X-35B prototype out for its first flight on June 23, 2001. A mere four months later, after witnessing the aircraft's impressive performance, U.S. and U.K. defense officials announced the X-35 concept would go on to become the Joint Strike Fighter. As the first supersonic, supersonic Stovall fighter jet, the F-35B will provide the vital fifth-generation carrier strike capabilities to the Royal Navy's two new carriers, the HMS Queen Elizabeth and the HMS Prince of Wales. These new Queen Elizabeth-class carriers are designed specifically for integration with the F-35B aircraft, including a ski jump ramp for short takeoffs. You should be seeing some video behind me. This is the USS Nimitz trials. It took place on November 3rd. They're a tremendously powerful recent example of accelerating program maturity. The Nimitz trials are just the latest milestone in a test program that is now 65% complete. The F-35 flight uh, fleet has already flown over 24,000 hours, and the flight envelope is expanding rapidly. With the United States Marine Corps scheduled to declare IOC in 2015, a key priority for the program is the development of the B model. And from a U.S. Marine Corps and U.K. perspective, there's no greater demonstration of progress with the B model than the two sets of highly successful trials on the USS Wasp. Trials included day and night ops and weapons carriage. And those of you familiar with the Harrier will notice the tremendous stability of the F-35B around the ship. F-35B testing was taken further leaps forward, including trials of U.K. weapons, U.K. Paveway 4 and ASRAM. And the first U.K. squadron will stand up alongside the Marine Corps squadrons in the U.S in 2016 before transitioning to the UK in 2018. So the age of global security demands global cooperation. Each set of stealth aircraft shares more than 60% of its respective parts, making all of the fighters less costly to build and repair. Sourcing, manufacturing, and funding by many different countries made the F-35 possible, giving all partner nations a fighter aircraft with common logistics and maintenance infrastructure. This multinational, multi-role fighter program not only provides unmatched capabilities to military forces, but it also secures high-tech, high-skilled jobs for hundreds of thousands of people worldwide and elevates international security by allowing for more integrated coalition operations. As the program's only level one partner, the UK has garnered tremendous economic benefits from the F-35, and British industry will, will build 15% uh, of each of the more than 3,000 planned F-35s, generating significant export revenue and GDP growth. The fingerprints of British ingenuity can be found on dozens of the aircraft's components. BAE Systems, GE Aviation, Martin Baker, Celex, Cobham, Ultra Electronics, UTC Actuation Systems, and Rolls-Royce are just a few of the more than 100 UK suppliers. So the F-35B is the backbone of Britain's future carrier operations and will meet the RAF's requirements for a fifth-generation fighter. Our great team is poised to do all we can to ensure the success of this marvelous aircraft 
and enhance our successful long-standing partnership with Her Majesty's government and British industry. So now let me turn away from slides and share with you some ideas I believe we should address in industry in aerospace and defense uh, for the second generation, the second century of, of, uh, of aviation. The early years of the first century witnessed engineers building countless contraptions with parts from locally available suppliers. Aircraft designs and designers came and went quickly. Every industrialized country produced its own military and civilian aircraft. But as technologies improved and aircraft became more and more complex, the number of producers decreased and the number of suppliers increased. And like other products, aircraft became global. There's not an aircraft manufacturer today that can stay healthy by selling aircraft to their own home market. But just like the F-35, and but not, not just the F-35, but all of my company's aerospace programs are supported by a vast network of over 30,000 global suppliers. For every dollar Lockheed Martin receives an income, 70 cents goes out to subcontractors. And it's not just aircraft that have global content. The same is true for many of our programs, including the littoral combat ship, our family of ground vehicles, including the UK-specific projects such as Warrior that we do up in Amptill. Some of our most vital programs may not have survived to maturity without multinational support. And for example, as most of you know, the C-130 launch customer in 1999 was the Royal Air Force, not the United States Air Force. Almost every major platform today is designed for export. The UK has always been a big part of our international footprint in Lockheed Martin. In fact, we used to divide up our business into five parts, UK, continental Europe, Asia Pacific, Middle East, and the Americas. The UK was so important to us that we gave it essentially its own geographic region in our business model. And when we looked to how I was going to grow Lockheed Martin International, LMUK was the model that we used to replicate when we go around the world and we focus on key markets. So my international organization has the responsibility for strengthening international customer relationships, industrial partnerships, and growing the company's global business, delivering this locally wherever possible. We've taken this step to ensure we continue to meet our global customers' diverse national security and economic development needs, and we've integrated our existing international business and operations and are helping our more than <clears throat> got it backwards and are helping our 7,000 international employees under customer-focused strategy for the 70 countries where we do business. I'm very pleased with the progress we've made in building greater international capacity at Lockheed Martin, but as I look to the future, it's becoming clear that we need greater innovation and greater cooperation to secure progress in the aviation business sector. The Lockheed Martin Skunk Works exists to create breakthrough technologies and landmark aircraft that continually redefine flight. Kelly Johnson's mantra, quick, quiet, and quality, still guides each and every project from concept to flight, even as they are focused on the aircraft of tomorrow. But innovation is more than inventing something new, and sometimes its most spectacular effects come from doing something different with existing resources or extending expertise into adjacent areas. For many years, our company tended to focus more on delivering products than in developing systems to sustain, to sustain those products. And this is a natural reaction to working with highly regimented defense markets where we've had great success meeting specific requirements over the years. But as systems have grown more complex and all defense budgets have come under pressure, our customers' needs have shifted. Instead of telling them what to do, to, instead of them telling us what to do, they are now asking what innovative ideas we have to create affordable, sustainable systems to gain maximum effect. And this is our shared, our shared challenge. So the reality is innovation is harder than it looks. 
As leaders in the global aerospace and defense business, we all must continue to push forward to the next great breakthrough and the next great solution. And innovation is a scarce resource. If we don't nurture it, we risk, we risk losing it. I believe there are three important things we can do to help promote global innovation. First, we need to support education. We all know the importance of STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. And recent data shows we're facing a potential shortfall of a million STEM professionals in the next decade. So fortunately, we have plenty of opportunities to advance education around the globe. And with nearly 40% of the world's population connected to the internet, there are unprecedented opportunities for global learning. Students in Qatar can take quantum mechanics at Stanford, and entrepreneurs in Montana can learn management strategies from professors in Oxford. Students at every level can be connected to global classrooms, from Nairobi to New York to Newcastle, teaching them about new cultures, new ways of thinking, and new technologies. The second important thing we can do to help promote global innovation is to make the right investments. Global innovation, <clears throat> excuse me, global innovation doesn't just happen. Great achievements start with an idea that gets nurtured and supported. Smart investments can mean the difference between world-changing innovations and good ideas that simply die on the vine. We need to strong public-private partnerships with institutes and universities for technology incubators and proving grounds for new products and processes. In today's tough fiscal environment, it's important to remember that putting resources toward innovation isn't about spending, it's about investing. Smart investments on breakthrough ideas can pay huge dividends, strengthening economies, opening up new possibilities, and making our world a better place. The third important thing we can do to help promote global innovation is to be more collaborative, which goes to the theme I began the speech with. This means working together on projects with common purpose and shared value, particularly within multinational partnerships. The F-35, as I've said, would not be possible without collaboration across the Atlantic and around the globe. But there are many other projects we've been involved in, I've been involved in, Meads, VH-71. Um, after 40 years, Lockheed Martin collaborated with international government businesses partners and on the Aegis Naval Combat System, another example, gave it widespread value and effectiveness to integrating air and missile defenses. Collaboration sustains and enables innovation. In today's environment, no single company has all the best ideas and talent. Technology collaboration enhances innovation, bolsters shared purpose, and commitment and supports greater political and industrial cooperation. Cooperation is no less daunting than innovation in securing progress in the civilian and defense aviation sectors. There are so many reasons why we can find not to cooperate. It's about politics, economics, and the sheer technical complexities of making things work globally. Considering the obstacles it has overcome, there is no greater example of security cooperation than NATO. Not long ago, many assumed NATO's reason for existing would evaporate with the end of the Cold War. And we've learned that with serious great power and non-state actor threats to the regional security, NATO is still very much indeed uh, needed. Yet many organization and governmental structures in place continue to reflect last century's thinking. It's still too difficult for a US defense contractor to gain approval to transfer low-end technologies to clo close NATO allies. And it's still challenging for NATO country, com country companies to gain access to the U.S. defense market, even with the full support of the U.S. business and their U.S. business partners. But the situation is showing improvement, as witnessed by BAE system success in the United States and Lockheed Martin's substantial and growing presence here in the U.K. Effective government and industrial partnerships are key to fostering a cooperative security environment. We have to talk with each other, not keep ourselves at arm's length, and somehow expect innovation's ideas to be transformed into affordable and sustainable systems. 
In aviation's second century, there will be eye-watering possibilities for new kinds of aircraft and new kinds of systems to improve air travel and air defense. We'll always be striving to go faster, higher, and further, but we'll stifle innovation without cooperation. It's up to us in industry to make international business cooperation a key element of our company strategies, to team with international partners to produce best fit, most affordable solutions for customers, to design platforms and services for interoperability and exportability from the very beginning, to invest in young talent to bring on the engineers of the future, and to work with governments in partnership to continue progress toward more rational export control regimes. So, and all of us should request our allied partners and governments to assure open markets, supporting international business, promote STEM and education, invest in programs with international partnerships and industrial content, use international competitions to provide the best military capabilities, and to work to remove legal, bureaucratic, and political obstacles to true industrial collaboration. So thank you for the opportunity to speak with you tonight and share some lessons from Lockheed Martin's first century. Um, a few thoughts of, of what all might do to take a, 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 a page out of the cooperation that we know is successful and to look at the second century of aviation. So thank you very much. From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.